You're listening to the Design Thinking Roundtable by Design for America of NYU. This season explores the human component of HCD by highlighting issues that are core to inclusive design and disability. We hope that through this series, you'll walk away with a better understanding of how to design for all humans. My design activism actually states that um, I don't like the term inclusive design. Yeah. <laughs> so That's great. Uh, so I'd say it, it, it um, you know, w- what we do in, in, in at the Disabled List and what I do in my work is, is I, I like to honor the friction of disability is what I say. And so, um, you know, I think that there is much to kind of contribute to design uh, just coming from the disabled perspective. That was Liz Jackson, founder of a disability-led self-advocacy organization called The Disabled List and co-founder of transcription platform Thyssen. You might be wondering, wasn't this series Designing for All Humans about inclusive design? So why question it now? Well, as we've heard from our interlocutors in previous episodes, there's little alignment about terminology in this realm of design. Inclusive design is being used to address all forms of diversity, not just people with disabilities. This is not surprising with such a complex topic, and we want to ensure that we paint the whole picture by shedding light on various perspectives. Therefore, in this last episode of our series, we sat down with disability advocates to learn why inclusive design has the potential to grow beyond its current conception and practice towards disability-led design. We'll explore the following questions through the lens of invisible versus visible disabilities, chronic illness, and empathy. Is inclusive design even a fitting label for this movement? How might disability-led design push the movement forward towards genuine inclusion? I think a term like inclusive design is sort of highly euphemistic. You know, I think you can look through the history of um, disability and, and really what you see is is things that we radically fight for always turn into things that are empathetically done for us. And so what I see is, is sort of an industry adoption of um, sort of a disability that feels good to them, um, but I don't actually know if it's effective. And I, it's, you know, I... It, you look and you, you sort of see these various terms around disability, whether it be universal design or accessible design or adaptive design or inclusive design. And I, the thing I always ask myself is, is that person actually um, talking about inclusion? Are they actually talking about accessibility or are they just avoiding the word disability? And so, you know, I think a, a lot of this is framed in in avoidance of of disability, right? Like they don't want to sort of stigmatize the work with this thing that has sort of been branded as ugly. And so um, for me, you know, I'm really more focused on these ideas of disability-led design um, and and how a, a disabled person can contribute to the process, right? Like, so you could have you could have an inclusive solution and sure, like you might create a, a solution that benefits some disabled people, but um, are are disabled people elevated in the process? Are they amplified? Are they do they benefit financially, or is it simply industry that benefits at at our expense? And so, you know, these are the things that I, I'm really kind of closely paying attention to. Liz's concern about the lack of reference to disability in the inclusive design discourse as a symptom of other issues is also something that Shayna Garfield, a disability activist and design researcher at a mammogram company called Hologic, has been thinking of. 
I've been thinking a lot about my definition of inclusive design recently, actually. And in my mind, it's really just an umbrella to include like all those people um, in the diversity and inclusion world. So inclusive design can be about women, can be about people of color, and disability is definitely included in that. So my problem with inclusive design is that when you're just using that word, you're not getting to the actual user and you're not using the word disability. So a lot of the disability advocacy is actually just trying to get people to say that word and to not be afraid of it. And when you're not afraid of disability, then you can actually create something that is for those people. Um, I think the word disability was really lacking. And so I felt it was my job and my duty to basically bring disability into that conversation because it disability um, the community is a minority group and they have to be included in those conversations. Disability-led design starts with destigmatization of disability and destigmatization of disability requires honoring it rather than fearing it. Proper representation of disability in design is a nuanced issue especially when considering that not all disabilities are visible. I I created this program. It's called the WITH Fellowship. Um, the thing that I saw was if you were to go on to um, Google and you were to you know Google the phrase um, disability design, you would see if you also Google the phrase design for disability, you would see that it yielded more than twice as many search results as disability design. So I created this program called the WITH Fellowship. It is in Design with Disability what I perceive as disability-led design. It's disabled people directing our own processes. It's um, it's uh, disabled people in, um, inserting ourselves into the process, right? It's, um, it's us actually being able to frame the questions that um, – that ultimately lead to the des- what the design is going to be. Um, you know, I think traditionally in co-design we're not actually brought in until after the question has been framed, after um, the process has actually already gained steam, um, and there's really very little opportunity for us to um, create something that may um, be more equitable for us. Through the WITH Fellowship, Liz and Shayna worked together towards bridging this gap. Liz explained how they met and how Shayna's perception regarding disability and the naming of disability evolved. Indeed, when they met, Shayna was a student at Pratt who needed a cane but did not identify as disabled. And so she asked if I would mentor her because I also use a cane and... I work in an office with an industrial designer, and so, you know, I said, come in. Mm-hmm. And very quickly, she made it known to me that she does not see herself as disabled, mm-hmm. um, even though she's designing herself a cane. Right. Um, but, you know, you um, it's not like I'm going to push it. Um, right. And so you're like, okay, let's work on the cane together, and we did. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that process, I, I made very clear in all those months that I would never refer to her as disabled. Right. And so I was actually shocked when I got an application from her for the WITH fellowship, because in the application, I don't say, what's your disability? I say, do you identify as disabled? And she said, yes. Right. But again, I didn't say anything. Mm -hmm. Right. 
And um, so she gets partnered with an organization, and um, and it's going, from what I could tell from the outside, fairly well. And I get this email from her one day, and she says, um, I'm really struggling. They don't see me as disabled. I needed them to see me as disabled. And I'm like, what the hell? What's going on? (laughs) I was like, what's going on? I was like, let's get lunch. So we get lunch, and that's when I realized, right? She knew that her opportunity in the organization um, came from her disability and her disabled expertise. But before the With Fellowship, she feared and and she saw that her she thought her disabled her disability would lead to a loss of opportunity mm-hmm. and so the the very moment at which she saw that her disability was actually an opportunity gain she was all in right right and so for me it's like okay like if that's what she's thinking yeah. like like there's probably a whole hell of a lot of people right that um uh might find some relief in in this approach Shana, could you tell us more about your experience identifying with an invisible disability? Um, so my experiences of stigma with, especially with an invisible disability, was like I was really embarrassed to consider myself disabled for a while. And I, you know, was like, I'm just chronically ill and I'm getting better. Yes, I can't really walk and I'm using a cane and I have all these other impairments, but that doesn't mean I'm disabled. And it took me a while and uh, definitely talking to other people to realize that disability is not something, it's not a bad thing. It's something that can actually become an amazing opportunity. And since then of acknowledging that I am disabled so many incredible conversations have happened. Um, I've been able to tell my story and use that within my work, which has immediately connected to other people. And I think that with stigma, it's, it's, you know, it's something to, it is hard to overcome because of the cultural implications of it. But when you can get over that and actually want to tell your story and embrace your identity, then you'll be able to connect with other people. And I think that's like one of the greatest powers of design is being able to uh, bring these emotional connections together. Both for a person experiencing disability and for a designer trying to be inclusive of disability, the shift in perspective that Shana describes from disability as difficulty to disability as opportunity is absolutely crucial. We connected with Morton Bond, a public speaker and creative director at Lego, to expand on this. Morton has retinitis pigmentosa, a genetic eye disorder that slowly makes him blind. We were actually talking about part-time jobs and even retirement because I was just totally burned out. But then I suddenly realized that the that uh, uh, or I I saw that I couldn't you know accept that I couldn't change that I was losing my vision. But I all of a sudden I just asked myself a question that you know if I can't change that, can I maybe change my view on losing my vision? So so um, that encouraged me to um, go on a path that uh, uh, gave I gave basically I gave myself four months to um, handle four challenges that I gave myself. So uh, and and the first challenge was to you know how do I master negativity in my life, and the second was how do I master fear and worry, 
and the and the third one was how do I master being a limited person. So um, that those were the sort of the the three major obstacles there in my life being a, a visually impaired um, person. So I started to really study how to change our old beliefs and habits, and um, and then I decided to test that knowledge in my real life, not just uh, thinking about it, but actually doing it. And and the fourth challenge was actually to create a talk about this journey and, and how to reprogram yourself to see possibilities in, instead of limitations. So, uh, so that was sort of a... It wasn't really my intention to become a speaker or a motivational speaker, but after com- completing the fourth task, which was to give a talk at Lego about my disability and and um, and how to really you know grow bigger than yourself and and your limitations, I uh, all of a sudden I reprogrammed myself to be a motivational speaker. So now I've done it twenty five times over the two last two years and um, and. That's that's the story on how I could become to became to um, to give talks about about this uh, about about how to cope and how to become bigger than your, your challenges basically. Uh, well, the most important thing I guess is that. I really want to tell people that when they feel stuck in life, if they have a belief that there's something that they can't do, it's very often a limitation they have in their mind and not in in reality. I I learned that all these things that I said that I couldn't do was basically something that I invented in my mind. When I shifted my focus from what I couldn't do to what I actually can do, I started seeing that well, this world is so full of opportunities and possibilities that I can and you know just reach out and grab. So I really want people to, you know, feel from my experience that they well they can go out and you know uh, pursue the dreams they have when they believe and they um, that when they see that they can actually create so many environments in their mind to support going after their dreams and that's um it's really important for me to do it and i actually the what i get out of it myself is that i constantly remind myself of that fact that i actually you know create my own life and it's not something that is created uh, from a disability or something out there it's something i create in my my own mind that's where that's basically where we create our life Empowerment through disability advocacy is certainly a promising avenue for progress in inclusive design. In further evolving the shift towards disability-led design, both Liz and Shayna also challenge the underlying driver of all schools of human-centered design, empathy. They take issue with this misunderstood tool that often reinforces pity. Well... Empathy is, you know, the, the, the sort of the very framework of, of design thinking. And so I decided, okay, well, I'm going to question empathy. The first thing is, is it, it reifies class and power structures, right? So you always have the empathizer and then you always have 
the empathizee. Um, mm-hmm. And the empathizer gets to create the narrative. Um, they um, get to be the savior. Um, and the empathizee can never usurp, right? They're always the recipient. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second thing is, is that I think it sort of tells us, it prescribes emotion. So it tells us that things need to sort of feel a certain way. And so I think in design right now, we're way too focused on making things feel good, feel empathetic. And, we're, and in that process, I think we're actually uh, creating things that actually accomplish nothing. Um, and then the last is, is it silences the recipient. And so what I did was is I, I decided, okay, I'm going to, instead of design thinking, I'm going to create my own methodology that I call design questioning. And what it's going to do is, is it's going to look at design thinking from what we perceive to be the user's perspective. Because again, right, disabled people are users. We're not drivers of design. Um, and the thing that I thought, like, started to realize was, is that, like, and it's, it's true, like, once we're actually able to question the systems that disable us, like, everybody stops seeing our bodies as the problem. So that became the motto of design questioning. People are always like, oh, you need to empathize with disabled people. Well, that's not going to happen because you can't understand their lived experience. There's the nuances of everyday life that you will just not be able to understand um, from your own perspective. And so I think what I think um, should happen is that by really connecting with yourself and understanding your own experiences and how you relate to your communities and other people on the earth, and then you'll be able to connect with others more. And I think that's what originally like what empathy was trying to get people to understand where you're coming from a different background, you have a different lived experience and you just need to be able to connect with other people so that you can then actually hear them out and um, create something with them and for them that they can use, but then more importantly, actually want to be used. So what does disability-led design look like in practice? How can we work towards this? Well, the idea is that you actually hire disabled people to be a part of your process. I'm really focused on how do we honor the friction of our disability. Um, I think that's how you know that you've reached a disabled audience and, and, and tried to delight them. Through the Designing for All Humans series, we learned so much about inclusivity and disability. These conversations open up new ways to theorize and practice human-centered design. Despite difference in perspectives, all of our guests emphasized a similar message. True inclusion requires a redefinition of empathy to avoid pity. It's about recognizing and honoring differences, while also acknowledging our limitations in fully understanding one another. A consequence of realizing these limits is also to move from inviting people with disabilities in the design process towards disability-led design, wherein people with disabilities are amplified as experts and hold decision-making power. Thank you for tuning in to the Design Thinking Roundtable by Design for America of NYU. This podcast is created, produced, and hosted by Harshita Nedanuri in collaboration with Anlor Fayard. Audio editing, mixing, and music are all led by Gilhem Tomasier. For podcast updates, follow us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash designforamerica and on Twitter at DFANYU. To learn more about the NYU chapter of Design for America, visit dfanyu.com.